Hey, science nerds. Welcome back to another episode of MRSA Podcasts, where we explore research in various science disciplines at McMaster University to try and bridge the gap between Canada's most research-intensive university and the new generation of science leaders it's fostering. My name is Mira, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jonathan. Um, so today we're joined by Dr. Jonathan Bramson, um, who's a professor in the Department of Medicine and the Vice Dean of Research for the Faculty of Health Sciences. Dr. Bramson completed his undergrad and postgrad at McGill um, before arriving at McMaster University. And Dr. Bramson's research focuses on the development of novel cancer immunotherapies. Notably, the Bramson Lab has created a chimeric receptor called the T-cell antigen coupler, or TAC, which displays robust anti-tumor activity while reducing toxicity compared to traditional CAR T-cells. Currently, the Bramson Lab is focused on the utilization of adoptive T-cell therapies and oncolytic viruses to better direct cancer patients' immune systems against tumors, and is also studying the development of other receptors that could play a role in novel cancer immunotherapies. Um, so hi, Dr. Bramson. Um, thank you for coming out today, and we're so happy you were able to find the time to talk. Um, we want to start things off by just getting to know you a little bit better. Um, so why don't you tell us um, a little bit about your journey into research and uh, what your specific interests are? as well as how you um, ended up as a PI here at Mac. Yeah, um, I wish I could tell you that as an undergrad student, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. But I'll be honest, <clears throat> I had no idea what I wanted to do. And if you had asked Jonathan Bramson um, in 1990, when I was in my second year of undergrad at McGill, um, what I was going to do in my future, it wasn't going to be this. So um, I apologize to anyone who's heard the story before. But I did my uh, BSc in biochemistry at McGill with the sole purpose of getting credibility that would allow me to sell um, nutritional supplements to people at the gym I used to exercise at. Um, so, you know, I recognized early on that for the most part, nutritional, su nutritional supplements were not really all that useful or important because you, you, for the most part, you, you urinate them out, right? It's, they're all water soluble things. You can't actually metabolize the amount you take. But nevertheless, I saw all my buddies at the gym taking tons of them. So I thought, that's a great place to sell stuff. And I thought, well, if I have a BSc, won't I seem credible? And biochemistry seemed like the most appropriate field to have my BSc in to sell these supplements. So I honestly went into the biochemistry program at McGill with that sole purpose. Um, now, as you could tell by how things went, that wasn't where I ended up. Um, in my third year, so in, in Montreal, uh, undergrad degrees are three years. So the fourth year projects that are done here are done in, in your third years at, at McGill. And I was just having this conversation, I can't recall with who recently, but in my third year, I ended up in a laboratory of uh, Nachum Sonnenberg and Philippe Gros, two uh, you know, godfathers of molecular biology in Canada. And you know, fortunate to be there. And, did some really great um, genetic work, you know, with very archaic technologies. You guys would never do this kind of stuff today. You know, these these blotting techniques that would take weeks to get data, and then you found out you did something wrong, and you got to go back and wait weeks longer to get data. It's just, it was very, but anyways, I became smitten. I, I was really fascinated by science. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I got a lot of good feedback from people in the lab. They, they said to me, other you know, graduate students really said to me, you, know, you should really consider this for, the, for your future. So I stumbled into a PhD project um, and, and did my grad, my grad school and still didn't really feel like I could do independent research. So you know, after, after my graduate degree, I really felt as though um, I loved lab work, I had really good hands, 
but if you ask me to develop a project and establish an independent research or you know become vice dean of a faculty it would be like no possible way so at that point i went to industry um i had I, I, you know, I, I, well, okay, apologize. I didn't go to industry right away, but I set my mind on industry. I, I decided that with talented hands, I could probably make a good living working for somebody else and doing their work. Um, and so I did a postdoc here in Hamilton in the lab of Frank Graham, uh, another one of the godfathers. So he was a godfather of adenovirus uh, biology. So I'm fortunate to have had just some amazing mentors over the years. And this was a project that was co-supervised by Jack Goldie, again, another just giant figure uh, in Canadian science. And um, my intention was to take that knowledge and go to a company. Uh, we were working in gene therapy, which was just beginning at the time, very, very hot field, lots of companies being created. And so after my postdoc, I went to a company in Vancouver, so I wanted to stay in Canada, and uh, experienced the industrial lifestyle. And I hated it, it was horrible. Um, you know, happy to get into the details of it, but I'll make a long story short. I was there for two years. The company arguably imploded while I was there. Half of the staff was laid off. I wasn't laid off, but I saw everything happen. But the light that went on in my head was I noticed that the folks who built this company and the folks who had raised all this capital, which was a very large, uh, you know, uh, initial public offering at the time, uh, had done so on pretty flimsy science and pretty weak ideas. And so I thought to myself, well, if those folks can be successful on such weak ideas, I should be successful on my weak ideas. And, uh, you know, realizing that industry probably was the right place for me, I started talking to folks uh, uh, about academic appointments. Uh, the people at Mac, I guess, were uh, semi-impressed by me and they recruited me back. So I joined the Mac faculty in 99. Uh, I joined what was called at the time the Center for Gene Therapeutics, uh, because they were focused on gene therapies. Uh, I became the director of that center. I changed the name to the Master Immunology Research Center, which, which everyone now knows as, as being Merck, um, and then went on to continue uh, you know, administrating science. Along the way, uh, met a lot of great people, had a chance to work with phenomenal students, undergrads and grad students, and we've done some fun science along the way. And, and I, I can say that, um, much of my life has been much like my lab, where you sort of do something, you see what happens, and, and you, you, you adjust accordingly. Um, you know, the one thing I can say, and I say all the time, is approach your life as an experiment. Um, if, if, if you think you can plan out from today where you're going to be 20 years from now, I will guarantee you, you will not be there. But you'll be somewhere else even more amazing. So that's my spiel. Um, that was really comprehensive. Thank you. And I think it raises a lot of questions for me. Um, I'm not even sure where to start, but 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 to, but to backtrack a little bit to, to what you were talking about, um, what did you could you tell us a little bit about your PhD experience and what what did you what did you study and, and uh, like how, like how did you enjoy it and like um, what, what, why what, what, what do you say like like made you think that you weren't ready to be an independent researcher after your PhD? Yeah, great questions. Um, so I had the good fortune of doing my graduate work in a program at McGill called Experimental Medicine, where there is no MSc project. So after undergrad, you go into the grad school there, and the intent is you, you, you go in for a PhD. Um, 
and and that's equivalent to what we do nowadays, where often you start as a master's and then you transfer to ph d. stream without actually changing labs. but at the time in the ninety s that wasn't common. so in the ninety s it was common to enter grad schools and masters do your two years of masters, write your master's degree, and then move to another lab. Uh, it wasn't common at all to stay in the same lab. So I thought that this program seemed pretty cool. And uh, you know, I found a supervisor who was working uh, in cancer research, which is an area I thought was interesting, and drug resistance, and so that seemed kind of appealing to me. And um, so it was a good program. And you know, in that program, you only get a master's if you fail your comprehensive. So if you can't pass your comprehensive and continue the program, the master's is your consolidation prize for the two years you put in. So I mean, most people get their PhDs. Um, so my experience, I would say, wasn't one of stellar science. And so maybe that's part of what affected my attitudes. My supervisor was a brilliant clinician. And he, you know, he was a, a breast cancer oncologist, um, but not the greatest scientist. He, he, um, he just wasn't very rigorous. And so, you know, it, it was a slog to, to, to get through it because mentorship's really valuable uh, in, in, in your graduate program. And if you don't have good mentors, it's, it's hard to get to a point where you can do really good science. So I was fortunate that I sought out good mentors when I wasn't getting it from my direct supervisor, who was a great guy, just not really built for, for, for this kind of research, I don't think. Um, and, you know, if he's listening, I apologize, but this is reality. And, um, so I found other folks uh, who, who provided great mentorship to me, and we did a lot of good things. You know, I finished the degree quite quickly and got quite a number of publications out of it. Uh, um, and so it was, it was a good learning experience. And I often tell people, it's best to see things done wrong first, because if you see them done right, you don't always realize it, right? So, so it, it's, like, it's like watching the Olympics, and you think, wow, this stuff's so easy, because Everyone who does it makes it look easy because they're so good at it. But if you watched people like us doing Olympic sports, you'd realize, man, that's really, really hard because those folks are just fumbling over themselves. So that's kind of what my PhD degree was like, where I saw science done badly. And then when I came to Mac and joined Frank and Jack's lab and saw science done well, it was just so crystal clear. This is what you don't do. This is what you do. And it's just not a learning experience I think everyone gets in their lives because most people end up in good labs and stay in good labs, and so they never see it done badly. Um, so I, I think it was a valuable experience, um, and it, it's not one that I would ever change because I mean certainly it's contributed to who I am, but you know that's it is what it was, and that's so that, that was my grad experience. Thank you, thank you for sharing that and um, telling us about kind of. I feel like most people don't go into like the bad, their bad experiences in research. So um, yeah, I was wondering if you could touch a little bit on something you mentioned earlier about working in industry. And um, I guess like what made you wanna leave and um, what your experiences were in industry? Sure. Um, throughout my career, I've always engaged with industry. And um, so why industry first? Um, I, I did my graduate program in the mid 90s, which is one of the darkest periods, I'd say, for Canadian research. Uh, you know, we were in the midst of uh, a, a recession across the planet and research dollars were just drying up. So opportunities were a little bit bleak. I, I would say I was a bit insulated from those realities, but it was, it was 
it was clear in retrospect what was going on around me. Um, and I just didn't really think that I had anything to contribute. I, I just honestly, when I, when, I, when I thought about myself in the context of, of a research environment, it wasn't that I couldn't come up with ideas. I came up with tons of ideas. I mean, I drove a project. We got tons of pubs out of the project, all driven by my ideas. So the ideas were there. I don't I just didn't have, maybe it's a confidence issue. Um, but I, I got, I got assays to work that no one else could get to work and I got them to reproduce. And I mean, all I ever did, and Mira, you'll know this when you come to my lab is I followed the protocol. If you follow the protocol as it's written, you'll get your results. And if you follow the protocol the second time, you'll get the same results for all your listeners. It just comes down to being diligent. So anyways, um, so I got all these assays to work and you know, I realized I could capture science and I understood science. So I just felt I'm better as a hired gun than as the person picking the targets. And so I thought industry would benefit from, from a hired gun. And so that's just where my attention went. I, I just, my, my brain just went that direction. And I had looked at going into industry straight out of my uh, graduate degree, looking at some industrial postdocs, but they were all in the U.S. and I really didn't want to go to the U.S. I, I really, um, I mean, you know, for what it's worth, I'm a Canadian. And I felt very strongly about Canada. And again, this is something that's less common now because Canadian science is just so world-class. But again, in the 90s, the way it was done was you did a master's. Then you went to a different lab, you did a PhD. And then you left Canada to go do your postdoc work somewhere else. And then you came back to Canada. And I just thought, why on earth would I do that? It just didn't make any sense. I mean. You know, my, my fiance, who's now my wife at the time, we thought, well, you know, there's some there's some romantic ideals about doing a postdoc in in Europe and, you know, getting to experience the European lifestyle. But the truth is, I'm a bit of a hard worker and she'd be experiencing the lifestyle on her own. So we decided, you know what, let's stay in Canada where we get to, you know, live in, in, a, in a country we love and, and know very well. And uh, if I'm busy in the lab, she's not left to figure out things for herself. So at that point, I ended up here in Hamilton, uh, which, you know, for us was a pretty big move. Growing up in Montreal, very, very insular community. Hamilton might as well have been, uh, you know, North Africa for our family as far as how far it was from Montreal. Um, and so that was, for us anyways, that was a good first step. And, you know, I, but I did that to go to industry. And then I did. I, I went to industry and it just wasn't for me. Um, so industry is a bit confining in as much as you build a company around a technology and an idea. And in order to, uh, to deliver on your promise to investors, you've got to turn that into a commercial, a commercial entity, right? You, you've got to make it sellable. So you end up with what I call a bit of a square peg syndrome where, listen, all I've got is this round peg. It's going to go into whatever hole I can stick it in. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, industry has been so important, right? If, at the end of the day, all the drugs that save lives would never have manifest if not for private investment. So we absolutely require um, the private sector. It's just different. Um, so it wasn't for me because at the end of the day, for me, if I've got a square hole and I've got to fill it, I'm not going to try and fill it with a round peg. I'll find a way to make a square peg. Um, but that's just not how it works in the industry because sometimes in industry, you can't get a square peg, right? Someone else owns it. So you got to figure out another way to solve this problem. Um, so that's why I felt I should go back. Uh, and as I said, you know, having seen 
leaders in the industry raising tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars on flimsy ideas, I thought, well, I could probably raise enough money to run a lab on an equally flimsy idea. Um, but you know, throughout that time, and even now, I continue to work with industry. I've, I've created companies. Pri the private sector has huge value. If, if, you're, if your goal is to deliver therapeutics that would benefit humanity, you will have to, at some point, engage with private investors. There's just no way to do that on the public dollar. So I, I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea. It's just not right for everybody. Uh, and it wasn't right for me. Yeah, long-winded answers. No, no, I, I think it was really, it painted a, a different picture. And I think probably the reality of things is that to be effective, you need to, as like, in, even while in academia, you need to collaborate probably with, with industry the entire time. Absolutely. Right? Well, it, it all depends on what you want. Um, for me, the science that drives me has always been applied science and has always been about science that I can explain to my grandmother. Well, not anymore. She's passed away. But when she was alive. Now my mother. Um, and so that's just how, that's what just drove me. But there's nothing, there's, that doesn't mean that's the only science there is. Tons of people, uh, we need, you know, basic scientists. We need fundamental scientists, physicists and others. We need all this stuff. It all feeds into each other. My sensibilities are, are best fulfilled when I can take my own direction, as I do in academia, but at the same time have pathways that allow me to see this get delivered to the patient bedside. So as an example, we created a company seven years ago called Triumvir Immunologics. Uh, it's based on some technology we developed with a postdoc in my lab, uh, Chris Helson, who's now at Triumvir. Triumvir is now a company in Hamilton where it's got an R&D base right now, 25 people and growing. Um, we treated our first patient in uh, May of this year, May of, no, uh, May of 2021, sorry, we're 2022 now, sorry, so 2021, we treated our first patient. And that was an amazing experience. That was seeing something that we had thought up in the lab, you know, created in the lab, took it all the way through clinical development. And it's a complicated product. It's an engineered T cell. So it's, it's hardly something that, you know, oh, anyone can make this. Um, and honestly, it was one of the most gratifying experiences in the world to, to know that you've actually accomplished a long-term goal and and it's it's you know and and to know that we did it all here in canada i i i apologize to folks who hate canadians always telling how great canada is and i'm not saying canada's great but very often people think quite the opposite that canada can't do these things right so when we were first building this company people kept saying why are you doing it in canada there's no money there there's no talent there and I said, well, that's, we're, we're Canadians. Why else would we do this? We're, we're building our own uh, enterprises. And, and to see that we can take technologies and move them into human testing effectively means we can do it here in Canada. And we're not alone. There's, there's tons of companies now growing in Hamilton that have all been emerged from technologies here uh, at, at the university. Fusion, Fusion Pharmaceuticals, John Valiant's company. Again, you know, radio pharmaceuticals developed at the nuclear reactor at the back of Mac campus one of the few academic nuclear reactors in the world, right? We're creating companies, we're treating patients, we're imaging patients, all based on stuff done here at Mac. That makes me so excited and happy. I think a lot of the time, like we forget how like intertwined industry and science is. Like, I think most people just look at it as like, oh, like I'm going into academia versus going into industry, but it's interesting to think about like the applications of like combining the two. 
Absolutely. Um, so in, in the 70s and 80s, maybe even the 60s, there was so much money in pharma. They built these massive enterprises that basically rivaled academic enterprises. But the idea that, well, why should we partner with academia? Let's just do it all in-house, right? And so it was inspired by companies like Genentech that emerged from Stanford, right? All these big companies that emerged from, uh, from, from the university. Well, here's, here's the problem. It turns out that it doesn't work that way. That, that industry just can't drive the same power as academia can. They don't have the same creativity. You don't have the same critical mass. So what's been happening over the past 15 to 20 years is pharma's been dumping their internal resources for like basic discovery, except for folks like Genentic. There are still food groups who, you know, Regeneron, but for the most part, they're dumping them in favor of partnerships, partner with academics, right? The academics have all this creativity, but they don't have the resources to translate, right? Pharma has resources to translate. They lack the, the creativity. So it, it's actually a fantastic partnership when, when played properly. So for folks in your position where young people think about their careers, try both. You know, you, you, you dabble on both sides, get the experience, see what you like best. And you may end up on one side or the other, or as many of us do, straddling it, right? Creating companies and then, you know, working with those companies and then creating new companies. It's, it's um, I mean, it's these are not impossibilities. And success builds success, right? So not only do I love Canada, I love Hamilton. And, and the fact that we're building industry in Hamilton means that venture capital is going to see Hamilton. They're hearing about it. They're seeing success. Again, success builds success. People want to bet on a horse that has won a race. So anyways, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that your listeners are listening and realizing that there's actually, there's, there's a future right here in Southern Ontario. You don't have to run. I kind of I kind of want to expand on that. So personally, personally, because because Mira and I we're both like Mira's in the Heroda Lab, I'm in the Ashkar Lab. We're both interested in going to in the Heroda Lab for now. Yeah, for, for now, no, for another four weeks. Um, but but because I, I, I wanted to ask, you mentioned how it used to be convention to, to 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 do grad school here and then leave for a postdoc. But I feel like the notion that Mira and I have picked up while we've been in our labs and we've talked to grad students, is that is that still what the best idea to do is, is to leave and then go to the US where it's more productive and come back. But um, I'm, you're the first person I've heard from who, who who's saying that that notion is maybe not, 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 not the truest. Did you ask Jay his opinion or you only asked the grad students? I've talked to my grad students about this, not Jay. Jay's never left Canada either. Nor has Don Bowdish, nor has Karen Mossman. Nor is Brian Lichty, nor is Ali Ashkar. You want me to keep on listing them off? I'm more than happy to do so. <laughs> Canada is no longer a place where we need to bring science in. Canada swings way above its weight in terms of impact. When in any of the metrics where people look at the um, the the number of publications or the impact of the publications relative to the investment by the government, Canada swings so far above its weight it's ridiculous. The problem is we're also solely underfunded, which means that which means that the reason we do so well is because the best know how to survive. Um, but what that also means is, as trainees, you have more than enough. If you want to stay in Canada, there are more than enough labs. The the one truth is, um, you know, um, science is a migrant experience. That part is true, and you have to follow the harvest. So 
science is not built, academic science at least, is not built to enable, you know, training in undergrad, grad, and eventually, you know, full-time job in the same location. Because um, there's a danger, first of all, in staying in the same location because you only learn how science is done there. And every institution has a certain culture and a certain way of doing science. And it's just because you end up, you know, your neighbors do something, like, listen, walk down the street of your neighborhood, right? At any particular time of the year, and you'll notice there's a commonality to the houses. People are putting up the same displays. People are sort of, you know, mowing the lawns at the same time, et cetera. You know, you, you build culture locally. And so to get the best experience, you need to experience different cultures. And the other piece of it is different groups have different successes at different times, and you need to be in those successes. So it is true that there is movement in science, right? So the likelihood that a person can undergrad in Hamilton, grad in Hamilton, postdoc in Hamilton, and then get a job in Hamilton, um, truthfully, that's a bit of a challenge. But, you know, can you stay within our environs in Ontario? Undoubtedly. We've got lots of examples now of folks who've trained entirely in Ontario. Again, because we've got major institutions in Ontario. So, yeah, I think gone are the days that you need to go somewhere. Um, and also gone are the days that academic, academics are the only way to do the kind of science that's satisfying, right? I mean, the academic route is truly the alternate route. There are so many other ways to go that are incredibly satisfying and, and, and you know, have as much opportunity, if not more, than academics. So, yeah, no, I, I, don't, I don't believe you have to go. You may want to go, right? And that's different, right? So lots of us have that desire to experience a different world, right? To experience different people. And yeah, that's, that's the beauty of science. Again, it, it's a migrant business. So you can follow that, you can follow that harvest around the planet, right? And, and, and enjoy the entire world while being paid as a scientist, which by the way, once you get out of grad school, you get paid pretty decently. Um, and also get to meet different people, meet different cultures, because you've got this unifying feature, which is, it doesn't really matter your culture is, when you're looking at a Western blot, you're all looking at the same protein, right? And, and, and that is such a unifying factor. And the desire to know what that protein can do, it doesn't matter what language you speak, right? And it doesn't matter what culture you come from. If you're a scientist and you want to know that answer, it transcends. So that part is just amazing. It's, you, it gives you a traveling card you don't get with many other industries. Yeah, thank you for sharing that um, perspective, I guess. I think we often hear the opposite. So it's good to kind of hear your perspective on it. Um, so we want to kind of like bring, I guess, the discussion back to your research and the kind of work that you do in your lab. So would you mind giving us maybe like a brief overview of the projects in your lab to someone who's like not very familiar um, with the type of work that you do? Sure. So, um, you know, we, we focus on something called cell therapies and the idea being you can use human cells to treat humans. And, you know, it's, it's not as far-fetched as it sounds. I'll admit it's complicated for the time being, but we're making it easier and easier. So my lab is particularly interested right now in immune cells, the white blood cells that you often hear about being elevated when you get sick or otherwise, and finding ways to uh, engineer those white blood cells to do our bidding, right? Uh, right now, the bidding that we're interested in is teaching them to fight cancer. Um, so we use synthetic tools as well as chemical tools 
to change the way the cells behave, to enable them to learn about cancer, recognize cancer, and ideally destroy cancer cells. So we know we can do that in a dish. We know we can do that in laboratory uh, rodent models. And um, we're, we'll know in a couple of months, if not a couple of years, whether or not this works in humans. To, to follow up on that, and we, we introduced um, what the TAC T cell was when we when we started off with this podcast. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that advancement that your lab made and uh, kind of like what it means, even in, sure. in, in, in laypersons speak? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I'm not the first person to think about engineering and modifying white blood cells to fight cancer. And the folks who did it before us and, and this work you know, find its, its roots in the late 80s, early 90s of the previous century. Um, they developed something that was eventually called a chimeric antigen receptor, and it's just, it's just a word, to mean that the receptor is a chimera. In other words, it's built of different parts um, and that are all stitched together into kind of this Frankenstein receptor. And over 20 years, folks got it to a point where they could actually treat patients with it. And, you know, I owe immense gratitude to those folks because all the work that I've done stands on the shoulders of those giants because they've paved the way and they helped us find all the things you shouldn't do. Again, seeing things done wrong first is always best because then you know what to do when you, when you have a chance to do it yourself. And um, so these, these so-called uh, white blood cells that are engineered with CARs, often called CAR T cells, uh, arguably are one of the most amazing uh, therapeutic modalities for liquid tumors that have been seen, I think, perhaps ever. Um, so these CAR T cells, when they work, take patients who have what's called relapsed refractory disease, which means the disease has come back, it's relapsed. Refractory meaning it doesn't respond to any available drugs. You treat them with these CAR T cells and the tumors go away, right? And, and many of the patients who are treated successfully see what we call durable cures, which means 10 years out, still no cancer after a single treatment. This has never been seen before in the history of our healthcare. So incredibly exciting, incredibly powerful. And I wish I could tell you today, that's what happens in every single patient, but it doesn't. When they first started incorporating this uh, technology into clinical practice, they had tremendous toxicities. Uh, in fact, they had patients who died because they didn't understand the technology and, and the response they were getting was an out-of-control response. Um, so my lab got involved with this, uh, this technology uh, around 2009, 2010, and we ourselves had a hard time controlling it even in the lab. The, it was just the, the white blood cells were overreactive, and we were seeing severe toxicities even in, in rodent models, like laboratory mice. So that got us thinking that, you know, this probably could be done differently. And that ultimately uh, converged on what we call the T-cell antigen coupler, or the TAC, which is a fundamentally different synthetic receptor that operates on a distinct biology where um, instead of creating a Frankenstein receptor, which to me is kind of a karate approach to fighting cancer, we simply redirected natural signaling and said, you know, here's the natural way in which a cell would respond. We're just gonna move that cell over here to respond to this. And I kind of think of it as more like a Tai Chi approach, right? A, a, a gentler approach to move the cell. And what we discovered was by taking this gentler approach to convince the cell to, to attack cancer, 
we also found that the cell was not as over-exuberant. You didn't get these crazy kinds of responses that were killing the mice. Now we were seeing the tumors go away, but we weren't seeing toxicities in mice. That, of course, got people excited and inspired, uh, ultimately led to the creation of a company and, and, and the clinical trials I mentioned, uh, where at least now in the patients that have been treated, we also haven't seen any toxicities yet. So, you know, good sign. We're early in the process, which means we're at the lowest levels of, of treatment, so we're going to be scaling up. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll know soon enough whether or not this, this promise of a safer, gentler, engineered uh, white blood cell therapy uh, is going to manifest. So that's the, that's the tech technology. Um, would you mind elaborating a little bit about, I guess, if there's been any off-target effects seen with the TAC T cells where you see these um, cells targeting healthy tissue? Because I know, I guess, like part of the problems with the CAR T cells is that there are some like um, off-target reactivity. Sure. So um, we have yet to find what's called the magic bullet for cancer. And any therapy that's using cancer will attack both cancerous cells and healthy cells. And so what you're looking for is something called the therapeutic index. Right? The therapeutic index is how much of the agent, whether it's an engine cell or otherwise, can you deliver and still see therapeutic benefit where the toxicities remain manageable. Right? So if you take chemotherapy, you know, since chemotherapy was sort of tested in humans in, in, in the 40s and 50s, I think there have been hundreds, if not thousands, of chemotherapy drugs that have been tested. There might be tens, uh, maybe hundreds, of chemotherapy drugs that are actually being used. And the reason is, many of those drugs were incredibly potent, but they killed healthy cells as much as they killed tumor cells. So in the case of CAR T cells, the toxicities aren't because the cells are attacking the wrong cells, it's because they're attacking the right cells just in the wrong place. Right. And so the real, the real, um, I guess, the real hook for for these kinds of engineered white blood cell therapies is how do you find a target that will allow the white blood cells to selectively attack the tumor, but not also attack the healthy tissues that carry the same target. So the TAC technology can't change that reality. That that's just that's a reality. But what people are doing now is um, using what we call Boolean gating, right? So getting more sophisticated in the way we approach our searches, right? So in the same ways you'd use Boolean gating in any kind of online search, you can do the same thing with, with engineered white blood cells. You can tell them if and or not. And, and you know, um, it gets kind of crazy, you know, but, 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 but we now talk about circuits in white blood cells, as opposed to only receptors. And, um, and that's a lot of fun. I mean, it, it, it does get nutty. Sometimes we do things that are purely done because you can do it, right? I mean, you, you would never imagine some of these very complex logic gates being used in humans, but the mere fact you can create them are pretty fascinating. So we're, we're trying to find simpler ways to, to adjust those gates. Um, simple ways are abundance, right? So if you can create a selectivity such that your receptor requires a high abundance of the target, and that high abundance is more pronounced in tumors than in healthy tissues, you can create that differential, right? Um, others are to uh, include a suicide or a, a, an off switch, 
in your white blood cell. Um, one of the things that we're toying with are what we call molecular switches, where we engineer the white blood cells, but don't actually target them at all. And we use small chemical ligands that will choose the tumor target. And that's being done with a colleague, Anthony Rulo, who's found a neat way of chemically coupling it to the white blood cells. And in that way, you're only transiently directing the cells. So you can kind of, you can, it, it's kind of like, you know, you can throttle on, throttle off. You put the, you, you put the coupling agent in, the white blood, cells, white blood cells do their trick. If you see toxicities, you stop administering it. And now they can't see the target anymore. So there's lots of different ways of trying to approach it. Unfortunately, the TAC itself doesn't overcome the off tumor toxicities. It simply overcomes the on tumor toxicities, which are manifest with CAR T cells. Um, thank you. Thank you for that explanation on the difference between like, like the TAC and the CAR. Um, I, I wanted to um, delve a little bit into what you said about like a synthetic recruiter. Um, so being a part of the Merck, I've heard some gossip that you've developed um, a universal car using that kind of technology. So um, can you expand a, a, like a little bit upon maybe how that's going and, and like the, the, uh, the prospect that that, that, that that holds? Yeah, uh, it's pretty cool. Uh, we're, we're, we're excited by it. It is real. Um, so, so I mean, the idea of a universal car or a universal synthetic receptor that, that um, operates with these molecular switches is not a new one. But what we found is these molecular switches, um, when attached non-covalently, can't always trigger killing. So you can't always see an effective anti-tumor response with non-covalent interactions. Um, Anthony Rulo, who is one of our newest members of Merck, has some chemistry that will covalently attach that to the white blood cell. And when you covalently attach, now you switch from being unable to kill to being able to kill. And, and, and that covalent attachment also allows you to operate at much lower concentrations, which would be more equivalent to what you'd see in, in, in the body. So you can now see evidence of activating the T cell against on-target um, uh, effects, but at concentrations 10 nanomoles or so that are realistic for the body, as opposed to you know, the more conventional switches that require concentrations of you know, one millimolar or more, which you'll never achieve in humans. It just, it's, you'd have to, you'd, you'd have to eat this stuff all day long. So yeah, it, it's exciting. You know, we're, we're, we're trying to push technology and see how far it can go, but um, yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Thank you for um, explaining that project as well. I think a lot of the research that you've talked about is super exciting. Um, we kind of want to, move more into some questions about like the role of undergrads in your lab too, just because that is part of the reason why we started this podcast series. So just to start this discussion off, um, could you tell us a little bit about the typical role of an undergrad in your lab and what kind of projects they've worked on in the past? Yeah, uh, undergrads work on the same projects as anyone else. Um, so I've had, I've had, I'd say, great success with 90% of the undergrads. Um, and, and the ones that weren't successful, it wasn't because they couldn't be successful, it's because science wasn't for them. Um, it, it, it gets back to the comment they made from the very beginning, which is um, science works well if you, follow the, if you follow the protocol. And so for an undergraduate experience, 
if you commit to the project, you read about the project, you learn about the project, you ask questions about the project, and you do the project, you're going to be successful. And if you ask me, that all sounds pretty easy, right? If you want to be there. But, you know, there are some undergrads who, I guess, just don't want to be there. And so either they don't read about the project or they don't think about it. So, you know, those are the rare ones. Uh, the majority of the ones are just absolutely amazing. And, and, and it's a pleasure. It, it's a pleasure to have young people who, who, who want to capitalize on the opportunity to learn, right? You know, I can tell an undergrad what to do. And that's fine. And they'll get it done. And I'll get a little piece of information. But I can also ask my technician to do it. And it'll get done faster, and I'll know for a fact it'll be done the right time. The role of the undergrad is to take a chance and to capitalize. You're here. I mean, you're you're here. You're in labs that are well funded. You're with world class researchers. You're not you're not technicians. We don't need you to be technicians. We we want you to 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 spread your wings. Now, obviously, in the beginning, undergrads have to learn. But I have found that undergrads can learn pretty sophisticated techniques in one to two months. And, you know, and they're doing just amazing things. We have some amazing undergrads right now. I'm looking forward to some amazing undergrads in my lab this summer. Uh, I've got very, very high hopes and confidence in them. And uh, it's just been amazing to watch. You know, for, in the earliest days, I didn't give very complicated techniques to undergrads. I, I was probably fooled into thinking that it was beyond them. And then as things grew, we began to take chances and we realized, you know what? It just comes down to the protocol. As long as someone is taught how to do something properly and that person is diligent, that's the big thing, that they're diligent, they'll do great jobs with it. And yeah, I, 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 it's, it's fun for me. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, I wouldn't be in academic science if all I wanted to do was deal with technicians and tell them what to do. I mean, I, I love my technicians. We've got great staff and they're phenomenal. But, you know, the, the pleasure of interacting with students is, is and, and hearing different thoughts and, and having people challenge me and, and prove me wrong. I love that. I, I love being proven wrong. It, 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 nothing thrills me more. Doesn't happen very often, listeners, but nothing makes me happier than to be proven wrong. Um. Thank you. Uh, I kind of like that you you don't like restrict what you what you what you teach your undergrads. But but on on the same thread, what do you look for in an applicant to your lab? Um, I want to hear from my grad students that they want to work with the person. So I, I used to interview undergrads in in a way where I meet them first, and, and then if I like them, pass them to the grad students, and that kind of worked. But I find it's way more effective to have the undergrads meet the grad students first. Um, and then once they meet the grad students, they meet Joni Hamill, who's my lab manager, because Joni is a very astute uh, judge of character. And if you get the thumbs up from the grad students and from Joni, then, you know, what am I to say? I, I just, I let you know the ground rules of how the game is played. And, you know, you want to play with us? It's great. The only downside I would say uh, to the opportunities for undergrads, not just in my lab, but across the board, is that we only have so much room, right? I mean, that's, you know, we need to make sure that there's someone who wants to train the undergrad and work with them. And so, you know, many labs only have room for two or three undergrads and we have more undergrads than we have labs. So that's the only downside. I, I wish there was a way to, to give more undergrads these opportunities. Um, we can't. So what I would say is, if you're an undergrad thinking about doing a project, 
make sure you engage early. Reach out in the fall and start talking and, and reach out to lots of people. And don't and don't 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 be offended or hurt if, if you don't get the lab you wanted. Um, it's not likely a reflection on you. It's more likely the fact that there's just so many talented young people out there. It's hard to give them all a home. Um, yeah. The other thing is, and um, you know, this is a bit more of a crapshoot. As early as you can in your in your degree, if you want to get you want to get lab exposure, ask. I, I get applications all the time for folks who are in first and second year and just want to work part time, and I often say no because I don't have the space for them. But sometimes I say yes, and, and those students have also turned out to be amazing because they get experience early on, and all you do is get your foot in that door. And, and show you're serious. If you walk, listen, I often tell people walking into a lab is like walking to someone's home. You wouldn't walk into someone's home and just leave dirt all over the place and, you know, take plates out of the, out of the cupboard and leave them on the counter and, you know, leave food out and let it rot or not show up in time. No, you come to someone's home, you show respect and you tell them you like their home. That's the first thing you say, what a lovely home. And people like you. When you walk into a lab, Show that same respect. Show the love for what they're doing. Show them that you want to know about what they're doing. Those people will turn to you and be very positive about you and give you tons of opportunities, right? That's all it takes. All it takes is asking people, hey, what are you doing? Oh, that's cool. Can I help you? Can I help? Can I, can I wash your glasses? Can I, can I, I don't know, can I, can I do your plasma prep? Whatever. That's all it takes. It, it's, it's, it's not that hard. But, you know, getting your foot in the door, I will admit, it's, it is, it is opportunity. Um, but there are a lot of great labs in FHS. We, we have phenomenal, phenomenal researchers. So, you know, you might want to do cancer and end up in an infectious disease lab. Well, you know what? You'll still, that, that you'll still learn great, great things. Yeah. Thank you for um, sharing that advice. I'm sure a lot of people will find it helpful. Um, I guess we'll wrap it up with just like one last question. And, um, it's so do you have any advice for like anyone who is looking to go into research whether that be undergraduate research or um doing research in their um graduate studies do you have what's your like one piece of advice for them be as open-minded as you possibly can that's my advice you know um you just don't know ahead of time where you're going to end up and Learning science, whether it's specifically in the field you want to be in or not, doesn't matter. Um, you'll learn science, you'll learn the basics, and you can always change fields. You know, I, I worked as my undergrad was molecular genetics. My graduate program had nothing to do with molecular genetics. It was uh, traditional chemotherapy drug resistance. I, of course, took my molecular genetics learnings and applied it there, right? And then for my, for my postdoc, I wanted to be an immunologist. And so I went to a lab of virologists where there were no immunologists, and I found immunologists who taught me immunology. Um, but the reason I could learn it all was because I'm a scientist, right? It's like being a chef. You could learn any culinary skill if you've got the fundamental skills of being a chef. So keep your mind open. Please do not be closed-minded and be experiential in all aspects of your life. That, that's my advice to young people. Thank you. I think that's really good advice. Um, I think that's 
it from our end. Um, thank you again for making the time to talk to us today. We really- Thanks for asking. I'm always happy to chat about this stuff.